I think the overarching theme is that coaches who think they know a lot are more likely to do harm than good, the higher the level of the athlete. Hey, this is More Than Velocity. I'm Bart Pear, and today we've got a special that I think everybody's really going to like. Um, along with Jordan Oseguera and Ryan Croton, who are always here, we've got Ben Brewster with Tread Athletics. Really excited to talk to Ben today. He's got a lot of unique perspective that we don't typically see with uh, facilities out there developing baseball players, and uh, I think it's going to turn into a pretty good conversation. So, Ben, first of all, glad you're here. Um, why don't you quickly explain what Tread Athletic is and uh, and how how you're kind of different than the average facility out there? Yeah, so thanks for having me, Bart. Um, good to be here. I've followed some of your guys' content for the past several months since you started the YouTube channel. So anybody who is watching this obviously already follows you guys. But again, one of, some of the highest quality information out there and definitely deserve more subscribers than you guys have at this point. So I, I want to do my part just to help kind of grow the channel because there aren't that many channels out there that really put out, you know, research-backed, evidence-based uh, information awesome. from people who have worked, you know, within the highest levels of baseball. So I appreciate what you guys are doing first off. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Tread Athletics for watching, um, so I played professionally my, myself. Um, I kind of had a, you know, my story in a nutshell, basically I was terrible in high school. I threw 70 miles an hour as a freshman in high school. I weighed 150 pounds, six foot three. Um, you know, I just decided one day, after a terrible freshman season at my high school, I'm going to do whatever it takes to play at the highest level. And for me, you know, I was a little naive at the time. I was like, I'm going to throw 95 miles an hour and I'm going to get drafted. Like that was my goal. I threw 70 miles an hour. I was terrible. So like at that point, I it was, it was a little bit naive. Like if a random kid came up to me today and told me that I'd say like, we have a long way to go. Like, let's take it one step at a time. But that was my goal. I just dove in. I started reading everything I could learning everything. There was a lot less information out there. 12 to 15 years ago than there is now. Um, it was Paul Nyman set pro for those of you who are kind of familiar and remember those world, that world, it was let's talk pitching.com. There was pretty much like one forum out there where you could learn about pitching information. It was, you know, Dick Mills and Mike Marshall. There were a few names, but nothing like today. Like there was no concept of weighted balls. Um, people didn't even realize that velocity could be trained. Um, there was really very limited information out there. And so I was reading and learning everything I possibly could, um, you know, cut to the chase, went through high school, injured myself a million times, just trying everything you can possibly imagine, you know, lifting improperly, just following every free program out there, trying to gain weight, failing anything you can imagine. I was trying to put all the pieces together. And that kind of becomes a theme with tread is there's so many pieces that go into performance. And I was just sitting there scrambling, just trying to learn, you know, kid by myself, my high school wasn't great at baseball. We didn't have a coach who like really cared. We didn't have any sort of development. It was me in the weight room by myself trying to figure out how to get better reading four hours a night. And so I end up throwing mid eighties as a high school senior. I'm a funky lefty. So, you know, at least I had that going for me, but I ended walking on at university of Maryland. Uh, for some reason, Eric Backage, he's the coach of Michigan. Now saw something at the walk-on tryout. He gave me a spot on the team. Um, Instantly, I was the worst player on the team. Everybody else threw upper 80s, low 90s, or low to mid 90s. I threw mid 80s. Um, so again, I was in this process of like trying to figure out why did I suck? Like what was wrong with my mechanics? You know, why couldn't I gain weight? Like why was I still weak? Uh, all these sorts of different things. And I was trying to balance all this at once. Long story short, I kind of fought and clawed my way up. 
395 as a senior, a senior sign drafted by the White Sox. And in that first pro season, I'd basically been keeping a log of my progress online for this whole process. Since 15 years old, I was like every single week keeping a log. And this is still out there today. It's a public uh, pitching log on this forum, Let's Talk Pitching. And a number of dads and players and, you know, thousands of people had followed this log and followed this evolution. So people started to reach out after I got drafted saying, Hey, could you write a program for my son? Hey, like, could you take a look at my son's mechanics? Hey, I'm a college pitcher. I'd, I'd love some information. I'd love some advice and feedback. So I was like, I had no intention of starting a remote training company. I had no intention of getting into coaching at that point. I did study kinesiology as my undergrad, just because it's like, Hey, if I can learn any little shred of information through that major, that might help with my baseball career. I'm going to do that. So that's why I did it, but I wasn't trying to get into coaching, but it just became one of those things where there was clearly a demand there. I was in season in my first pro season. I was trying to figure out how to help these kids, you know, make a little bit of extra income on the side. Obviously you're making $4 an hour in, in the minor leagues. Um, but realizing like, Hey, there actually is an opportunity to help these kids. It's not, it's not like, you know, you're just going to give them a, five minute mechanical breakdown and send them on their way. Like there actually is an opportunity. They have nothing in their area. They have no idea really what to do to get better. They're just being given towel drills and, you know, doing half squats and deadlifts with rounded backs and don't understand how to track their calories and don't understand they have 17 different mobility issues. And so all this stuff that I had learned and applied in my own career, I started to realize like, look, I can, I can put this into a system. I can put this into a systemized, you know, assessment process you know, we can build out the lifting component, the mobility component, the nutrition component. Like we can put all these different pieces together, the throwing component and really make an impact on these guys' careers because they're all just, you know, they're going to a strength coach, but the strength coach doesn't understand baseball. And maybe they go to a nutritionist, but the nutritionist doesn't understand throwing mechanics. And maybe they have a pitching, uh, you know, pitching coach, but the pitching coach doesn't understand strength training. And so as we talked about right before this, you know, we hit record, there's this silent approach in baseball at every level where no one really can take this bird's eye view and look at development from that, that bird's eye view where you can see all the different pieces that go into high performance and how they all interact. And so that's what I wanted to do. And that's how trade was initially founded is it was founded to help some of these athletes get better, but trying to figure out a way to actually get them better and not just, you know, sell a, a one-time assessment or one-time service that really doesn't get them better. And so the process for tread has been, you know, Hey, we want to basically be, mentors that can address all the different pieces of their development from a bird's eye view and be with them for the duration of their entire careers. So we genuinely approach every athlete that comes to tread as a remote training service, as we want to be with you for the rest of your career. And so we've had athletes now we've been in business for six years that have been with us for six years where it's like, we're, we are going to be there. We're going to help you navigate the navigate all of the different variables that go into high school and navigate all the variables that go into college and navigate all the variables. If you make it to pro baseball that go into that. And how do we balance all these things? Because there's all these very intimate inner, like inner reactions between, you know, you can't really, you can't divorce like your nutrition program from your throwing program, from how you adapt to your strength program. If you go and squat 10 sets of 10, that's going to affect your bullpen the next day. If you don't get adequate sleep or you don't eat enough calories, that's going to affect your bullpen the next day. If you throw 150 pitches in your outing, that's going to affect your ability to, to deadlift or your upper body lift the next day. So these things all interrelate. And so that's really how Tread was founded. It started with uh, my co-founder, Cohen, and I starting it uh, that first year. And from there, it's really just been something that we're passionate about. Uh, we've both just really been passionate about helping pitchers. 
Uh, it began with, you know, 30 athletes, actually, uh, Rob Friedman, pitching ninja, uh, his, his son was one of our very first clients. He had been following that log for like seven years and he was one of our very first clients, his issue. And again, this takes understanding all the different pieces. His son's issue was nutrition. And he had been to some of these different facilities around the country. He's a 14 year old kid throwing 76. His issue was actually nutrition and no one had actually sat down and taken a look at the big picture and realized like, well, it's not mechanics. He moved really well. He was throwing 76 at 130 pounds, 135 pounds at 14. He moved really well, really strong for his size, right? He was trap bar deadlifting 375 at 130 pounds. That's pretty strong for his size. Mm-hmm. No one had actually sat him down and, and explained to him the importance of nutrition and actually given him an actionable step-by-step process for implementing that advice. No one had explained, here's how we take all this noise about insulin and all this stuff. And like, no calories macronutrients. Here's how you track it. It takes two minutes after each meal. Here are the best carb protein fat sources. Here's exactly how you do it. Here's the pitfalls you're going to find. Here's exactly what to do when this happened. And I'm here every step of the way to answer your questions. If you get off track, here's how to track your body weight. We're going to get a live feed every single week of where your body weight's at. And if you're on track, boom, he did it for a week, gained a pound and a half, another week, gained another pound and a half. And he's like, I got it. I understand this. And from there is like, let's just keep doing that. Let's keep, we track all the metrics. We make sure everything's on track. He gained 70 pounds in a year and a half. And he was throwing 95 as a high school senior, 91 as a junior. And so for him, like we have countless guys where nutrition was a limiting factor and countless guys where it was something else. So maybe it's a, a subtle mechanical flaw. Maybe it was a strength flaw. I know we're going to talk a little bit about that in the podcast, but understanding like everybody has a different limiting factor and you can't truly appreciate and understand that unless you can look at it from the bird's eye view, you know, check the box. Are they doing everything from a nutrition standpoint? Need to, are they doing everything from a mobility standpoint? Did you actually assess them head to toe and see where their deficiencies are? Do you actually know how to address the, the joint of the tissue uh, or, or strengthen that specific position that where they're lacking, right? Are this their strength where it needs to be head to toe, you know, on one leg, on two legs, pushing, pulling, grip, isometric strength, concentric strength, power. Can you, have you addressed those variables? And so there's so much going on. And I was the guy who was just trying to figure it all out. And there's all this noise. And like, I probably cost myself four years of development trying to do it myself. That now I look back and I'm like, wow, that was an amazing learning experience. But I really wish I had thrown 95 as a senior in high school and not as a senior in college. And so that, that was, you know, that was ultimately the motivation to starting tread. It's like One. not having people make the same mistakes I made. And, you know, I'm going on my fourth surgery actually next week. And I've probably had a hundred injuries over, over the course of my 15 year career. And a lot of those could have been prevented through smart training, through, you know, understanding proper form, through eating properly, through recovering properly, through understanding proper biomechanics and, you know, not listening to random gurus online that would say like certain mechanical cues that made no sense. Um, so yeah, just a lot of, a lot of failure, um, that's kind of fueled trying to learn, uh, fueled improving, and then trying to share that with, with other athletes. So, Anyway, to finish that up, just some context, uh, we now coach over 900 athletes as a company. We have 27 employees. Um, and so we're, you know, we're growing this thing into a monster. We're trying to really scale impact. That's our, that's our mission. Our mission is to help athletes rewrite their stories. And to do that, we need to understand so much information on the back end and be able to simplify and distill that down. And so we're just trying to give guys a chance to achieve what they're capable of. For, for a 15-year-old who's throwing 60, maybe his dream is to play D2 college baseball. Let's do it for a pro guy. Who's just on the cusp. It's to play in the big leagues. Let's do it. 
we have big leaguers where they're just a fringe big leaguer. Their goal is to be a Hall of Famer or be an all-star. Let's do it. So that's that's our goal at this point. And our goal is just to scale that impact. And just as big as we can possibly scale that impact. And beyond just that piece, it's like, I know you guys are doing something very similar. Can we become a trusted resource in the industry for everyone who isn't our client? For every one person that works with us, 100 people follow us. Dads, athletes, they still want to get better. Can we help them? Can we have an impact on them? And so that starts to be really exciting when you think about being able to exponentially scale your impact and, you know, seeing the quality of the content you guys are putting out. And I think we're on the same page as far as that too. Yeah. If you, if you don't mind going a little more in depth, uh, one of the things that stood out when you're talking about those logs, the daily logs, tracking what you're doing on a regular basis, that's something that every athlete I've ever worked with, I've encouraged them. You write down what you did on a day-to-day basis and you're going to find out what is working and what isn't working. So you can pivot really quick if you don't mind going into a little more depth on that, because I think yeah. that's something that's very overlooked in development. So um, I don't know if I have screen sharing privileges here. Um, if you can enable that, I can actually show you what the logs look like. If you want to do that. But basically the idea is we need to be able to track the inputs and the outputs. We need to be able to track what are you doing from a throwing nutrition training standpoint? And then how is your body actually responding to that? Mm-hmm. Similar to what you guys have been kind of talking about with the app, but you know, okay, we took in 3,600 calories on average this week. Well, we lost a pound. Okay, that's not working. We're trying to gain 20 pounds in six months. Okay, let's bump it up to 4,000. Did you actually follow that? Yes. Okay, we gained half a pound. Cool. You need to know the input and the output to see how your body's actually responding to that stressor, to that, uh, to that variable. Yeah, one thing I want to touch on that as well is just the importance of the honesty of putting that stuff in. Cause I have some players that I work with that are really struggling to gain weight and they think it's going to make me happy to see that they wrote down 5,500 calories right. for the amount of food. They, it's like, I would rather you just be honest with me that you may have prepared 5,500 calories of food, but if you only ate 2,500, we need to know why you're just staying the same all the time. So the honesty, and it's going to give you that intro introspection, I think is the word to really know what's going on with that athlete to create those plans. For sure. For sure. And yeah. And, and we tell them up front, like, look, if you're just lying to yourself, if, if you're going to put in false numbers, if you're going to tell me you squat 400 pounds and you weigh 130 pounds, like you're just lying to yourself. Like I <laughs> will have athletes like that where they come in and it's like some high school kid who's 160 pounds. And he says these crazy strength. He's like, I roll 120 pound dumbbells for five. I'm like, no, you don't. I don't even have to like, look, I don't even have to look at you to realize like you don't do that. So this is just an example. Um, so we try to keep it against as simple as possible. There's so much noise when it comes to nutrition. If they get calories and macronutrients, right. That takes care of 99% of nutrition. And I'm sure a dietitian who's like dealing with very specific scenarios and micro, you know, micronutrient ratios and everything would disagree. But from a purely body composition standpoint, if you're trying to have a kid gain weight to support getting stronger, you need the calories and the macronutrients. So we have our guys track fat, carb, protein intake. We give them specific goals. Um, we'll use my fitness pal typically for them to track that. It's the easiest way that we found literally just at the end of each meal, take two minutes and input what they ate and input the portions at the end of the day, they can see if they hit their goal or not. And we give them a specific goal for each of that. And then they just weigh themselves once a day and write it in. So it'll, you know, track along the trend line that we've given them. They can see very quickly. Are they on track? Are they not right? If they're just not following it and their weight is down here, Super easy as the coach to see that super easy as the athlete to see you're getting off track. Why why are you getting off track? Are you not hitting your calories? Oh, wait, 
you know, your goal is 4280 a day, you're eating 3200 a day on average. Like we probably need compliance. Like that now that becomes a conversation with the coach. How do we improve compliance? Right. Is it a problem? I got a quick question for you, man, as you're you're on this, because I I think athletes need to know this too. When do you have them weigh themselves? You know, for instance, like, are they in a hydrated state? Is it in the morning? Is it after they've eaten, you know, for the entire day and it's at night before they go to bed? I think that would be helpful, you know, for the people who are, you know, out there listening to this to understand what, what should they be telling these athletes to be consistent? Yeah. So uh, my preference is first thing in the morning after going to the bathroom. And that accounts for if you were like hyper hydrated going to bed, like after you go to the bathroom, it kind of evens out that state. You don't have food in your stomach and you've, you've gone to the bathroom. That's just a uh, consistent state to measure your, your body weight in. Um, it doesn't have to be that time, but it should be a consistent uh, state of how fed you are and how hydrated you are every day. So you can do it before bed or first thing in the morning or both. Typically, you're going to find if you do measure both, which is which is okay, you're going to see a two to four pound swing between the morning and the nighttime number. And that's okay. You can measure both and just see how they both, you know, increase. But you just have a little more noise if you track the bedtime weight, because if you had a, you know, a later dinner or like a huge dinner and didn't eat big of a breakfast, like there's just more going on. So first thing in the morning after going to the bathroom is, is what we use. Do you have a different kind of set of guidelines that you tell your guys, or is that what you guys used to? I mean, yeah, for me, um, you know, pro ball, it was a little bit chaotic because you had to measure them when they, they got to the field. Um, and they were usually coming in hydrated and they're usually coming in fed. But the one thing that we didn't do that I think is essential for young athletes is they need to weigh themselves after games because they lose a ton of body water. And what what people might not know is that water is actually helping muscle growth because if you're hydrated, your muscle cells are larger. And especially if you're hydrated going into your lift and then you're taking in your protein, you you just have bigger cells to put more amino acids in there. And um, so whatever weight is lost, they need to gain it back. And we didn't do that. Um, And we didn't do that because of a manpower issue. I think, and we should have, we should have put it on the athletes, but we wanted to be there to measure their body weight just so that we had accurate numbers. Right. And so we didn't, we didn't run the risk of an athlete, you know, making up numbers. Um, but I think that's pretty essential for young athletes to, to get into the right hydration habit. Cause I know we've talked about what, what you're saying. I completely agree with it, getting the macros, right. Um, but if they don't really understand body water, you know, they, they might use a urine scale or, or something to that effect to understand, um, you know, how hydrated they are. They're, they're leaving muscle growth on the table for sure. You know, when they're not hydrated and and a a big piece of that too, you you might be able to touch on this is carbohydrate intake. Um, because we know that, uh, water binds to, to the, the carbohydrates. And so if you are going on a super, super low carb diet, you're inherently going to be less hydro. You're going to have less water in your muscles. You're going to hold less water. And so I don't know if you want to speak to that, but that, that's an sure. important piece as well as just having, you know, we, we try to get as many carbs as we can in that diet, provided that we've checked the, the fat and the protein intake boxes, get it again, yeah. especially for guys that are doing, you know, they're in the middle of fall ball or they're, you know, conditioning once a day and lifting once a day and at practice for four hours in like college, super, super important. A lot of guys don't realize that they just, eat whatever. And they don't realize that carbohydrate is intake is extremely important too. Yeah. Yeah. I think like, you know, you need to be hydrated. You need to have obviously water, carbohydrates and salt. 
And, um, you know, if they're, if they're lacking those areas, I, I know there was a, there was a significant keto athlete as a catcher. I mean, usually the one year that we, that we had all these catchers, I think it was in 19. Um, we just had catchers that were absolutely ripped. I mean, you, you've never seen better physical bodies on a catcher than the ones we had. Luke Croy, we had a, you know, um, a, a few of them, but there was one in particular that mentioned that he was on a keto diet. He ate mostly meat, uh, had very, you know, meat nuts. He had very little carbohydrates, but when we, we realized that, you know, he didn't play every day, that might've been okay for him. Um, but we had a, a, a catching injury, um, where, uh, Luke Roy got laid out by, by a base runner and, uh, he had to then start catching every day and he was exhausted. You know, our lifts went, he would come in and lift. He'd be so highly motivated, you know, 40, 40 minute lift, which is a lot in major right. baseball. You don't want a player in there longer than that. And uh, you could tell that his energy levels weren't there, you know, and the carbohydrates are our fastest energy, you know, and um, yes, baseball, there's a lot of standing around. You're using a lot of fat, you know, as, as a fuel source, but you need to have a lot of muscle glycogen. You know, you have to have enough stored carbohydrates because over the course of games with heat, you know, and, and, and dehydration, all these kinds of things, you're going to start using a lot of the body, you know, sugar. Um, and so, you know, there, that was a major change. And, you know, when I think about pitchers, you know, starting pitchers, they, they, they should be snacking. You know, you, you shouldn't go, you should never go three hours without eating something you know, without having a, a, a snack that's got, um, you know, the, a four to one ratio um, or, or even, you know, less, but carbohydrates to protein, you, you need to have that as an energy source. Um, and so one, things that one of the things that we really stress, because we knew that carbohydrates were important in the, in the hydration and like uh, trail mix, that was great because there was the carbohydrates from dried fruit, quick energy, it also combined with the protein from the nuts, but they were also salty. So, you know, we really wanted to encourage our athletes to, you know, to have snacks because like you're, you're saying, like, we don't want them to lose body weight. You know, what people might not know, um, I, I'm a research associate at Louisiana Tech, and we just, we're on this, this big study about elastic resources and, and particularly jumping capabilities and pitchers. And when we looked at all these particular variables, we found that absolute power um, in the jump was incredibly important to throwing velocity. But when you, when you decompose that absolute power has a, has a function of obviously force and velocity and forces related to body weight. And, um, when we looked at jump height, there was no relationship between jump height and throwing velocity because a major covariant, the one that factored the most was body mass. And so we understand like if our pitchers are losing body mass, they're not eating right. They're not hydrating you know, there's a physics equation called momentum, which is really important in throwing sports, rotational sports, every sport basically, but it's mass times velocity. So if you're losing mass and you're not moving faster, you're losing momentum and it's going to affect your, your, your throwing velocity or sustainable throwing velocity. And so we want, we wanted to optimize this, you know, as athletes are improving their jump, they should also have an improvement in their lean body mass. And you're right. You hit it on the head, man. It's the nutritional habits that, that we need to, uh, 
to get into working with our athletes. You know, there's, there's so many of these um, chaotic features about how to make a pitcher better at, at the game. And, you know, a lot of these are like microcosms, little small elements that we're overseeing. And, and, and the thing is with your business, you're hitting on these things and we want to get there. I mean, we're taking the perspective of strength matters most because we know that pain and availability, uh, pain and dysfunction are the most important factors to re remediate because we need the pitchers available. But, you know, all these things, like you're saying, you know, the, the ability to sleep well, you know, their hydration level, their nutrition, like these are things that, you know, a, a high school student doesn't really know. And even pros, you know, they, they don't really know coming in. They don't have these habits. So, you know, you are on the right track, in my opinion, to producing high level talent that are, you know, draft ready and guys who are already, you know, pros to, to perform well because they need that support. It's the stuff behind the scenes For sure. you know, when you're not on the mound that matter. I don't know if we're ready to pivot on the question, but it's uh, it's bringing one up because obviously nutrition, anyone who's listened, Bart knows how much I have. A, I'm on a war path for especially high school kids. Eat freaking food. Just eat any way you can. But with that, and I listened to one of your, uh, your videos on in-season training. And for me, in-season training, it's getting more traction in the baseball world. It's still not as solidified as I would like it to be. Right. Uh, anyone, if you're, if you're listening on Spotify, obviously you can't see I'm put together really well. You know, I'm like five, eight and 140 pounds. Like there's not too many people built like me. Uh, but when it comes down to it, I had a guy that I was, I was working with a couple kids at one of one of the high schools in my area. And I got a, I got a phone call from the head coach and said, you want my pitchers to run sprints in season and you want them lifting at least twice a week. Yeah, I do. And pretty much he said, if you keep working with, with Jordan, these guys are, you're not going to play for me because you're going to be tired and you're not going to be able to compete well, wow. but the information's out there. You have, if you're not training, you're going to lose the, all that jump power and everything Ryan was talking about the lean body mass. You're going to dig yourself into a hole where you may feel fresh, but you're not going to perform the way you should. And if you want to go a little bit, cause I, and, and if anyone who hasn't seen it, maybe Bart knows how to do this. You can maybe link that video in the, the description. Because sure. it's a fantastic overview of going a little more in depth on in-season training. Because you need to keep that lean muscle mass. You have sure. to sprint. There's so much. I'll sorry to keep going on that. But yeah, you you no, do a so really good job. Another resource you, you guys can link is uh, we have a free in-season training program as well. Um, so literally giving them a, a weight training program, giving them a throwing program. Hey, here's here's something you can follow in season. And it gives them some slight uh, choice as well. So they can, you know, choose between a few different exercises. Uh, it gives them the sets and reps and everything to follow and links to how to do the, the exercises. Um, but it's, it's so important and it's a balance, right? Like you can't just go and crush it to the same level that you would in the off season and expect that you're not going to be fatigued and sore. Like that very much does happen. It can happen. And so I think that's where, you know, lifting in season gets a, it gets a bad rap is because some coach somewhere along the way, like, did four sets of 10 heavy squats in season, had to pitch the next day and was like, I didn't throw as well. My legs were tired. My legs were sore. And that very much is, is and can be a reality. And so it really comes down to knowing how to, you know, fine tune that balance of volume and intensity. And that's what people don't understand. Our approach to it has kind of evolved a little bit uh, in season before it was really like, let's just maintain strength and not be sore. And so you can do that easily. You just take an off-season lifting program. You cut the volume in half. You keep the intensity about 90% of what it was. 
and you won't get sore. You'll maintain your strength. So four sets of 10, four sets of eight turns into two sets of eight, one to two sets of eight, one to two sets of 10. That works fine, but we've kind of slightly pivoted how we approach in-season training to where, hey, can we do better than just not making guys sore and maintaining their strength? Can we actually maybe address speed or power a little bit in season? And so we've had more of an emphasis on, hey, let's still keep the volume down, um, but can we, you know, can we hit some speed sets? Can we hit some power sets and actually try to improve some of those metrics without making them sore? So it might look something like, I got one one rep range might, might be like one set of three heavy, three sets of three speed reps on a safety bar squat, right? You're not going to be sore from that. You're not going to be sore from one heavy set of three and three speed sets with, let's say 40% of your wonder at max. So it's, you could just do two sets of three, call it a day, or you could actually take the approach of, Hey, we're actually going to get something out of this from a speed and power perspective as well. And so that's something we've pivoted a little bit where you can still maintain strength. You can still not be sore for games, but we can still maybe get a little bit of that potentiating effect, but at the very least, at least be working on improving some metric in season. And so to me, that's a great place to do it. Exactly. And then mm-hmm. from that, it sounds like you're hitting a little bit of nervous system work with exactly. some speed as well as building the strength around that as well. So you're going to have the skill and the strength kind of marry those two things together to help that guy develop. I can, sure. I can uh, jump in on this because this is, he, he hit on an area that I think is really important because in season, you know, athletes lose power. And uh, I train athletes a whole bunch of different ways. And finally, when, you know, I got to the angels, the uh, GM was all in. He's like, if you need equipment, I said, we need to train by velocity. We, we really need to understand, you know, how they're moving when we're working with bars. Um, and uh, I, I don't want to get run the risk of making them fatigue, just like what you're saying. You know, they, they need to be able to auto-regulate. And some, some athletes, you know, they may have a push band or they, you know, they might have something that they can monitor them uh, so, and training centers do. But what I can tell you from experience, from studying it and studying our entire minor leagues, is that in, in barbell compound lifts, the fastest rep is the second rep. The first rep is the potentiator. It gets you ready. But the second rep is the one that moves the fastest. And that's typically of almost all loads that are over 65%. Anyone who's done velocity training, you know, triples and knows that second rep is, is the yeah. best. Unless you so, like lost the rep a little bit or something, it's always the second rep. Yeah. So, so what we would do is that, you know, especially if we had an athlete that needed to, to have hypertrophy, you know, needed mass gains. And what we would do is we do modified German volume training. And so instead of doing like 10 by 10, you know, it was modified that we would be doing like 10 sets of three. We wanted to at least get those, those, those second reps involved, you know, and we, and we also, we understood, we had the coaching communication that when an athlete needed to gain lean mass, they need to be on a different playing schedule. They, we needed to be able to have enough calories conserved that they could grow. And I think that's important too, is, you know, the athlete has to have conversations with their coach. And, you know, sometimes the two-way guy who's the pitcher and the position player, it's going to be a hard time gaining mass and they're playing all the time. So they need to have certain periods of time in their competitive week um, where they can recover and they could store energy and they can train because, you know, in season, obviously they have to perform, but even at the, at the high school level, you know, if they're a, a freshman in high school, they, they know that by their junior year, they have to start showing up 
And so somewhere they have to either pay now or pay later. They have to have a trade-off of how they're going to approach this, you know, but sure. uh, the, 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 the brings up a super important point, which, and again, we, we might not prioritize as much. Like let's say we have a guy who needs to gain lean mass in season. It is tough to do. Admittedly, you might be able to gain a few pounds in season, but it is tough. It, it's so crucial for, for people to understand you don't have to compete year round, especially at the high school. And obviously in the college level, you're, you're kind of stuck with whatever your coach is doing. Like if you have to, if you're playing fall ball, you're playing fall ball, but realizing that you only have this, this very precious finite window of time in the off season to make these gains. And so this is like, this is the struggle that I ran into like through high school, through college. Like I literally felt like the baseball gods were like working against me because I was like, why do I only have five months to gain mass? Like if I could only have like two straight years where all I did was train, I would have gained the 40 pounds, like just like that in two years and, you know, been throwing 90 plus, but it was all broken up in season. I couldn't make any progress in the off season. I might gain 10, 15 pounds, do it all over again. Next off season, maybe gain 10, 15 pounds, but these sustained periods of, of just development, it's for some athletes, like the best decision they could make is to take a gap year for high mm-hmm. school in particular, or to not play fall ball at the very least. Like take these long sustained periods of time to focus on your limiting factor. And if your limiting factor is lean mass, if it's nutrition, if it's, if it's strength training, like you're going to need time. It just takes time for your body to adapt. You just, you can't gain 60 pounds overnight. Like that's a two-year process. Yep. If, if you do everything guy, perfectly, that's two-year process. You're, you're hitting it on the head. I mean, the guys that I've seen that we've brought in that have been really good and just talking to them through their stories are the, are the guys in college, they finally get it in college where they skip the summer league. They yes. just say, hey, once the season's over, I'm taking a week, you know, doing a little bit of active recovery, working a little bit more on cardiovascular work, you know, lessening the inflammation, and then I'm getting right to it. You know, we get those guys that, that make those gains. They have those extended off seasons, and, you know, they come back, and they are, they are so game-ready. You know, the, the thing that athletes don't get speci- specifically pitchers is that the goal is to get to the major league level as soon as possible. You know, like the seven years that, Oh, you know, he needs to develop. Um, we're going to have five to seven years with them. Like that's not a great concept. Like there, there needs to be a sense of urgency in every athlete and they have to find a way to get there sooner. And, and really physically like our GM said it best. He, he put a whole bunch of underweight guys in a room. He was unbelievable. And he just said, hey, if you don't wear, if you don't weigh 180 pounds, you're not going to be promoted to the major league level. Cause I, I don't trust that you're going to be able to sustain the physical, uh, you know, nature of the game. And, and, uh, you know, we need you to grow. We, we can't have it a, a velocity loss out of you. We need sustained velocity. And he just said it straight. You know, and the behavior, like you're getting the, like, obviously we had a great dietitian and Becky Twombly, she's outstanding. But when you hear this from the GM, oh man, the behavior's changed, you know? And, and that's the thing is like, we need to get, we need to get our athletes to be game ready. You know, if you know that you're lacking physical size and you're, you know, they're, you're, you're looking at your velocity records and they're kind of all over the place. You know, you need to make that sacrifice. You really do. Um, because once you get into a professional setting, you, you, it's either you put up or you're, you're put out. You, you, need to, you need to put those numbers up and you need to advance quickly. You know, you have to be able to do that. So 
Yeah, I think that that point comes back to being able to kind of zoom out and and take a a wide perspective at what are my limiting factors? Like, is it, do I need to play summer ball? Like for a college guy, do I need to play summer ball to like refine my third best pitch and like work on my holds with a runner on second? Like, is that my limiting factor or do I need to gain 20 pounds over the next, like, do I know what do I want from June until next February to gain 20 pounds instead of from like September till February to gain 20 pounds, right? Like being able to zoom out and really understand like the two or three areas that are going to propel them to the next level. It's usually not like just continue playing. Now it can be like, if you have a guy already throwing 97 in college and like he just has some command issues and he has some mental issues and he's game reps to work on that. He needs more game reps and game exposure to, to work on the specificity of like that mental stress. He probably does need to go play summer ball. Like there is, there is a time to actually go and play, you know, longer period of the year. Like a guy maybe who was hurt all spring, he probably should go play summer ball now that he's healthy and get those reps. But there's so many times, like we have guys come here, uh, their college coaches will send them like powerhouse schools and they'll say like, I've got three guys who need to develop. Like I'd rather send them to you and know they're taken care of. Then just have them send them off the summer ball, have them get 12 innings and like come back the same pitcher. Yeah. Yeah. That was something we dealt with a lot on the, the professional side of it was we would get an athlete who, you know, even if it's a player that just came over from the Dominican, he may be six foot four, 155 pounds, great fastball velocity, not much on the secondary pitches and the commands kind of all over the place. So it's one of those things that, me and Ryan put a lot of effort into trying to get in a sense, we just called it like a, a prep program to where these guys would kind of be in a different group. They're only going to throw live BPs. They're not going to go face the other teams in, in a uniform until they're ready, until they've hit these check marks. They're still going to throw bullpens. They're going to focus on this development and one of the big pushbacks. And again, this is, this is just kind of a way a lot of baseball still thinks is, well, we need to go play those games because the only way we're going to get better is by playing games. There is some truth to that, but there's also a lot that's false with that because there's a lot of players that skip summer ball or they take the gap year. And now they've refined those things and they've dialed that in through a practice setting. And then when they roll back into a game, let's say they just made 15% progress as a whole in a three month time span, as opposed to playing games, needing to worry about, you know, overloading, underloading, handling your, 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 uh, your uh, super compensations and everything that goes along with that. And now you only got 3% better. So which one was more beneficial? And again, it's, it's very context specific. If you have the guy that, Hey, I don't know what we're going to do from a strength standpoint. His nutrition's fantastic. He's already got three plus pitches. He just can't throw a strike whenever a hitter steps in the box, get that guy into some games. So I think you hit it perfect. of saying that's very context specific that you're not going to recommend every player take a gap year. Not every player needs three months to skip summer ball and dial in one specific aspect, they may need to get out there and play summer ball. And I think that's really important is there's not a right answer for everyone, but there's a right answer for the individual given the context of the sure. circumstance. Yeah. Just to, just to add, add on to that before we move on, uh, I kind of look at it like, uh, you know, in like a MLB, the show, like create a player, you have all these different like metrics, right. And you can like toggle up certain ones, but you only have so many like, whatever, like points to, to assign. So like you can toggle up like arm strength and velocity, but then like certain, certain metrics are going to be a little lower. Certain ones are going to be higher. Ideally you want to toggle all those all the way up, right? That's, that's your super player, but ultimately you have a limited number of 
resources, right? You have a limited number, limited amount of time of recovery. You can only focus on so many of these things at one time in a specific training block. Like physiologically, your body can't adapt to 12 different things at once anyway, especially if they're conflicting stimuli. So we need to allocate our time and our, our training resources as appropriately as we can. And so just understand if the athlete actually understands like, Hey, these are where all my metrics are. This is what I need to do. It becomes a lot easier conversation with the athlete. It becomes a lot easier conversation with the coach to say like, I'm going to take off from summer ball to actually focus on these things, because this is actually where I need to, you know, crank up the dial. I'm already 90, 95th percentile on these things. I'm 30th percentile over here. I better crank those up. And so it just becomes an easier conversation. Usually it's a conversation with their college coach which that becomes the tension point or their high school coach to be able to actually provide a little bit of data, a little bit of context. And then it becomes a much easier thing to implement. Yep. So Ben, you said you've listened to the podcast. I'm sure you've heard me say, Hey, if you've got questions, submit questions, we want to hear them. We will, we'll address them on other podcasts. I'm knowing Jordan and Ryan's background and their experience. I'm very curious what questions you would have for them that you would pose to them. Okay. I have a number written, a number of them written down. It kind of depends what direction we want to take this. Uh, would you guys rather talk about stride length? Uh, talk about right. lead, uh, you know, ground reaction forces on the, on the lead leg kind of oh, yeah. um, right. yeah, talk about <laughs> grip strength, uh, grip strength and injury, or yeah. would you rather talk about uh, potentiation? I, I think if we, if we can, we could talk about all three. It would just have to be concise. I think those are great. You choose one. Okay. Let's do stride length. I yeah. chose that because I know that's kind of your, your wheelhouse. Um, I'd like if you could kind of summarize for people, like what are your what are your thoughts on like the sweet spot for stride length? Yeah. Because some people are like, I need to get stride as long as possible. And I just do a bunch of tallow drills. And some are like, no, you need to throw exactly like XYZ Big League who has a short stride because they throw a hundred, like Joe Kelly throws a hundred and he doesn't have a super long stride or Gratterall yeah, yeah. doesn't stride super far. Um, and then other people are like, you got to throw like Chapman. He strides super far. What is the sweet spot and how do we find that sweet spot? And then I'll kind of give my take as well. Yeah. Like I, I think stride length are stride lengths are really determined based on your, the anatomical, you know, the musculoskeletal system. Does the athlete have the right mobility? Um, do they have the right strength and power to be able to project themselves into a further landing point? Those things are really important. Um, in my research, and I, I, I studied college pitchers primarily, I had, a, I had four high school kids that were really upper level um, high school pitchers. They were, they were all drafted. Um, they could, I really manipulated their stride length. I mean, I just want to see what could these guys do and what happens to the body mechanics if we really don't have a good concept of where stride length needs to be. Some of them would stride around you know, the, the average was at the lowest level, they'd stride at 52%, at the highest level, 76%, you know, when they were going beyond their typical stride. Like most of the athletes, when you measure between the two heels, were on average in their desired stride length were around 69%. So they weren't like at the 80 plus percent that you normally see. But the cool thing about the research is that the velocity was the same. It didn't matter what they did. It was the same. And so... In, in my world of strength matters most, this is why, you know, I just, I just had a publication accepted to look at grip strength change with stride length change. What happens to the throwing arms grip strength neurologically when you have a change in stride length? 
And when pitchers would reduce their stride, which can happen when they're fatigued, um, the grip strength loss went up. So that something challenged the flexors of the, uh, the, the pronator flexor mass um, during this period. And so for me, the stride length is very individual. You know, if, if you're capable of getting the athlete over 70% body height, you, you have a better chance of throwing at higher velocities at lower levels um, on average. Remember, they're outliers. But for me, this is why I love our product with arm care is to d- make sure that the arm is strong because there is a strong distal connection. If the athlete has a really far stride length, they may have greater linear momentum and they might not have to rotate as fast, right? That, that's another research paper that we did on momentum. Um, if the athlete doesn't stride very far, then they have to increase the rotational momentum. They have to pick that up to create velocity. In both scenarios, you need to have in the high rotational velocity, short stride length, they need to have a ton of strength because the arm is going to lag. You know, when you have to increase the speed of your trunk, your arm's going to lag behind and you don't want to have extra stress to the arm and have any weak points. Now you do need that strength for your longer stride lengths, but it's not as critical because they, they seem to manage um, the rotational velocity. They become less rotational as a pitcher, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, you know, the, what I can see is, you know, obviously identifying where there could be limitations of velocity. If they're increasing their stride and they're gaining velocity, you know, then there needs to be training to support the sustainability of that velocity. And there has to be the two-way communication with the athlete to say, yes, this is comfortable. I'm able to continue this. Um, there's a conditioning effect, I believe, in terms of increasing velocity, because I've studied also the, the endocrine, endocrinologic uh, component and the, you know, the, the blood uh, analytes that I looked at. I looked at all the, you know, um, uh, lactic acid. I looked at blood glucose. I looked at all these different things and pictures and what happened in stride length. So it needs to be trained. But if the athlete, you know, can give you some comfort then they might say, you know, this, this is the right self-organization for me. This, what's, this is what feels right for me. So in all, all aspects of stride, like, I mean, we talk about, you know, that our product being evaluating the throwing arm, we just have to ensure there's no weak links there. You know, the, the, the proximal component doesn't have, it has an effect on the, the throwing arm. And, um, you know, we just want to make sure that that, that component is looked after because also, you know, stride length changes over the course of the season. There's going to be adaptability in the stride length. And so, you know, an athlete that may become, you know, linear becomes more rotational. So that's why I'm saying my message is strength matters most and it can cover, you know, these changes in stride length or maybe a stride length that's not optimal. For sure. Would you agree just real quick? Would you agree that there is such a thing as too long of a stride for an individual? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we, we have one, so I'm putting together an arm care IQ that shows an athlete that's got too long of a stride that he's actually airborne. So, um, you know, what, what happens is it can affect arm timing. And if, you know, if what's happening is that if, if they're in the air and their foot's off the ground and they're already at early layback, you know, that's an issue as well, because now you're, you don't have your back leg to be a rudder. 
So, you know, what happens, what can happen, even with short stride lengths, is they pull everything in. If you think it's like, you know, it's like a, a figure skater when they want to increase rotational speed, they're pulling everything in. But now this is, you know, and they're trying to increase their momentum um, in rotation. But what happens with these longer strides is that this gets disjointed. You know, now things are way too long and the arm may be fast. And so they're, they're, they're just out of sync. So it is possible. Right. You, know, you, you kind of see both, both sides of the spectrum. If their stride is too short, the arm tends to be late. And if the stride is too long, the arm tends to be early. Yeah. But what is an early or a late arm? The arm can only be early or late relative to foot strike, relative to what the lower half is doing. So what yeah. is a late arm? A late arm can actually just be an, a short stride or an early stride. What is an early arm? It could actually just be your stride is too long. So you yeah. have to look at the arm timing in relation to what the lower half is doing. It's not just like this independent thing where your arm is just here for no reason or your arm is yeah. like for no reason. Yeah. They're, they're finally starting to put some information out on that, that arm, you know, timing arm position, they're finding, oh, it's not really that relevant. But then when you start factoring in what's going on below that, now you have relevancy of what's happening with the arm. Because just like you said, Ben, it's all in relation to what's happening below that. You know, you're, you can't be late if, if you're not in the right, if everything below it's in the, not in the right position anyway. So it's, it's gotta be in correlation with what's going on below it. Yeah. I, I, there, there's obviously a point to research. I try to study as much as, I, as possible, but there was one research article that looked at the inverted position of the arm and uh, an early trunk rotation. And they found that when, when they compared the inverted position, there was no difference in injury risk. So this inverted W didn't have any relationship to injuries versus the, what was considered a healthy arm position um, at foot contact, at foot flat, sorry, a weight-bearing foot flat. And so the, the key what is what's happening with the trunk with that arm. You know, if you, if you have a guy that's rotating early and the chest is starting to square up the home plate and that arm hasn't achieved the least parallel to the ground, you know, then, you, then you're going to have this, this, incredible speed that you have to get your arm to catch up you know but it's it's really interesting but that i i think the trunk the relationship with the trunk is really important like when does it start to open where is the arm in that position that might be the best determinant of what's the right stride length you know sure. from a mechanical perspective for sure and that that also highlights how difficult it is to pin an injury on any one specific variable yeah, because there are so many variables. There's so much going on biomechanically. There's so much going on with each individual that you're studying, like their their strength deficits. Maybe they have perfect mechanics, but they have a strength deficit. Maybe they were under recovered on the day of the study. Like there's so many variables that you could pick almost any variable and try to correlate it to injury. You're gonna have a hell of a time actually doing that unless you have just thousands and thousands and thousands of data points, just because there's so much going on. Yeah, so it's 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 so difficult to actually study that to study the, the relationship of injury to one specific variable. Yeah. The, the best variable might be fatigue. Like fatigue, yeah. you know, for sure is linked to that. But that, that might be the, the one thing that really has that extremely strong, undeniable relationship. I, yeah, I believe like what you're saying, when it comes to mechanics, I believe that everybody has inherent variability that they need. So there's an amount of variability that's healthy. Um, where the movement is, there's the right attractors. I mean, in terms of the stable states in the delivery, they're there, but there's a lot of the variability how they get to those attractor states um, is within a range. 
And like what you're saying, I believe fatigue changes now that variability. And when they look at the variability of the system, you know, people in biomechanics, they look at different positions like peak knee height, foot contact, maximal external rotation, ball release, maximal internal rotation. They're looking at all these discrete events in the delivery, but it's the variability and the linking of those events that I think is where people are going to see certain signals to say, okay, when the athlete has this particular amount of variability, you know, and it changes, that could potentially be a risk factor. You know, what we want to be able to do is take the strength perspective, because if they're neurologically strong, they're fatigue resistant, right? Um, the other thing too, we talked about hypertrophy. When they have more tissue, they can handle more stress because stress is, the formula is force over cross-sectional area. You just got more tissue to handle that stress. And so when we have those things, we are, we are hedging the bet that we'll be able to stand up to when the variability becomes destabilized. You know, and then the other thing too, you look at injured pitchers and Jordan's worked with a lot of injured pitchers. I'm sure you have too, Ben, is that pre and post injury, they sometimes don't look different. So like prior to the injury, they become less variable. Their variability becomes more invariable, which is also an issue. So this is why the, the world of pitching health, you know, has to take a strength perspective and it has to identify how does this affect the mechanical efficiency of the delivery in terms of their, their variability, in my opinion, to, to answer those questions. On, sure. on that as well, you know, we're talking about the health side and where it relates to a stride length, you know, stride angle, whatever it is we want to look at with that. But one important thing to consider too is the, is the actual quality of the pitch. So, you know, you might get a guy into an optimal, you know, uh, you know, stride length to where you are seeing an improvement in the kinematic sequence, better arm positions, however you want to quantify that. But if you're seeing a regression in, you know, the right of a fastball or the depth of a breaking ball, or all of a sudden he's throwing two miles an hour slower, or even, you know, Hey, we added four miles an hour, but we just gave him a BP shaped fastball. Like those are technically not positive changes. So there, it, you gotta be really factoring it in. And I know we were talking, I think it was before we started recording is everyone has these tools. Almost everybody has tools available at their disposal to measure with Rapsodo or Edgertronic, whatever it may be, but you need to understand when things are getting better, worse, or staying the same. And that's going to help quantify what's going on with those mechanical adjustments as well as there's, there's a lot of great info out there and it's tough to say. And, you know, one of the questions I had, which I'm going to ask you a little bit later is obviously on you know, that everyone's calling it lumbopelvic control and just the, the difference of, you know, it, everted, retroverted, anter, there's a million words that I'm not bright enough to remember all of them, but it's something that I've talked about with Croton and understanding those variables within a person's anatomy is going to impact stride length, stride angle, the way you load, what your pitch shapes could uh, inevitably end up looking like. Um, so it's not just a health standpoint. And if, I don't know if you want to jump on that a little bit too, of, yeah. of looking at it multifaceted. Yeah. You, you have to be able to see the whole picture, right? And this, this comes back to not having a siloed approach where, uh, you know, like one coach needs to be able to be at the very least familiar with these other, other avenues. Um, the most common area where we see this, and you kind of alluded to this uh, in pro ball, we see it with all this data with Dragman and Rapsodo is coaches will be like, they'll pick a certain metric that they want to improve which is great, right? Like if a guy is a, is a high carry guy and he's an 18 inch vertical break guy, like maybe we want to get him to 20 inches of vertical break, but what they'll do is they'll sell out for that metric and not realize that the guy just dropped four miles an hour because now he's just cheating his elbow 
above the plane and just trying to push the ball to get 12, six backspin, but really he's a low three quarter arm slot guy. And so you've just changed what made him successful. You've just changed his, his mechanics. You've just changed his lower half. Like all this other, all these unintended consequences happen up and down the chain at the expense of chasing that one metric. This is like, this is the most common thing we're seeing now because everyone has this technology and they still don't really fully understand the implications of it. So like, just to put that out there, like cheating the elbow up when chasing vertical break is far and away the most, it's, it's the thing that bothers me the most right now that I see in pro ball is you'll take a guy who shouldn't be a vertical break guy. He's a sinker. Like he should be a sinker guy. And they're just coaching everybody to be the same. Everyone needs to be a high carry guy. It's like, wait, I had five inches of vertical and like 20 inches of horizontal. Why am I being, why are you making me throw, you know, a high carry four seam? Like that doesn't necessarily make sense for every player. And even if it does make sense for the player, it only makes sense if you can improve that metric while at the very least holding everything else stable. Like we've had, we had one guy that we just consulted with former like top 10 round pick, uh, he was throwing 96 when he was drafted. Now he's throwing 90. And we looked, we took one look at his video before and after. And we're like, he's definitely been working on carrying his fastball. And so we got on a call with him. It's like, yeah, I pretty much spent a whole year just trying to carry the fastball. And like his elbow basically started coming up here. He was karate chopping into ball release instead of whipping his arm out and around. Like everything started to deteriorate just to chase this one metric. So to your point, you just have to be able to understand how any change you make mechanical uh, if, you're, if it's from the data side, if it's from the strength side, if you can monitor all the metrics that are important and have those at your fingertips, then as things start to change, everything's always in flux. But as things start to change, you can identify those problems way ahead of time instead of looking back two years later, like, crap, what happened? Mm-hmm. And then they come to us and we have to, like, put the pieces together, like, what happened to get to this point? Like, why is this guy who threw 99 mile hour sinkers two years ago, like, think of one big leader we work with in particular, like, why is he throwing 92 with forearm pain? And so we had to literally like put all the pieces together of like where he got screwed up by his organization. Oh, wait, they like started having him preset his hinge. They got rid of his forward, like his, his drift and his athletic delivery. And they started making him throw like a robot. Oh, that's interesting. What happened after there? Oh, your VLO dropped four miles an hour. Okay. Oh, then you had forearm pain. Like you have to appreciate all these things come together. So I'll, I'll stop the rant there, but it's just no, so that's- important. It's dead on, and That's you know there's, on, there's been a ton of players that, you know, with organization A, that you know gets drafted, and and these are true stories. I'm not going to use names, but they have a player come in, and they 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 want them to learn how to do a double balance point in his delivery. I'm not sure exactly what that looks like or how you would even explain that, but they start having them do a double balance point. Is that, is that the Marcus Stroman like? Uh pause pitch I, thing. I can't even I have a pretty weird imagination and I can't come up with something for it so I don't know exactly what it looks like um but they do that and then we sign a guy at x velo and he starts dropping down to losing that velo and then this is also a true part of the story he goes to tread athletics and he gets rid of the double balance point whatever that may be and he actually gains velo comes back and he looks like a new pitcher and then they trade that guy and it's like, hey, you know, he's, he's got his velo gain. Let's get this guy, trade him. He gets traded. And all of a sudden, this other organization realized there's more than one plane that you can develop a pitch on. Right. You can go up and down. You can go left and right. You can go forward and back. And then they start going, oh, we don't just need to develop only a four seam going this way. What if we got him moving the ball this way based on that arm slot? And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, the guys in the big leagues less than three months later because someone was willing to look at it, even if it was just, hey, here's one piece of the puzzle. These guys fix that. 
Here's one other piece. And now we can add that. Now we got a big leaguer. And it's just little things of being able to go, you know, I don't have all the answers. And I'm going back to the log now of what makes a good coach is someone who screwed it up enough, screwed it up enough to know what doesn't work or what's going to work for a specific body type. And that's just the unique thing about it is my anatomy is different than yours. Yours is different than Ryan's and Bart's is different than whoever else is we want to compare Bart to. And each one of us are going to have different needs, different, you know, physiological structure. And I'm using this as kind of my segue into, you know, the lumbo pelvic control loading, you know, knee dominant, quad dominant, things like that. And exactly how your hips are, sure. you know, internally rotated and externally rotated, because there's also another, I'm just going to call it an issue in baseball to where they want everyone loading the exact same. Yep. They go, okay, well this, and you're, we're talking on chasing that metric. Well, now we need every player loading the same. And then I'll get a phone call from someone. Hey, I got your number from so-and-so. I've lost five miles an hour in my first year of pro ball. What's going on? And then again, you'll look at the before and after. They're chasing that metric because you go on Twitter, you go on YouTube, everyone's talking about load, but then no one's really explaining it the way that you are with the different types of you know design of the pelvis and everything that goes along with that. If you don't mind jumping on that a little bit too. Yeah, so I think, I think the overarching theme is that coaches who think they know a lot are more likely to do harm than good the higher the level of the athlete. So this, is, this mostly happens in pro ball because you have athletes that are at such a high level that come in throwing mid-90s that have fine-tuned what they're capable of. It's not that they don't have room to continue to improve, but these guys are closer to their peak than a college guy or a high school guy. And so any change that you try to make to, to a guy who's already that close to their peak is vastly more likely to do damage than to have a positive benefit. Then let's say you're working with a guy who throws 60 miles an hour in high school, anything you do with him, like he's flying open elbow, like he has no idea what he's doing, stepping with the wrong foot. Like anything you do with that guy is going to get him better. Whereas almost anything you do to Garrett Cole is going to get him worse. And so having an appreciation of that is like having just respect for the fact that that's the reality. I don't think a lot of pro coaches have that. They're like, Oh, I know how the, I know so much about mechanics. Like this is how you have to throw. And then they apply that to a staff of big leaguers and, or a staff of pro guys. And that might work for four of them and it might make four of them completely worse. And it might kind of have a, you know, null effect on the other eight guys. Um, so a, I don't think there's an appreciation for the, for that fact that I know when I start working with a big leaguer that I better be dead on and I better tiptoe into that change. And I better measure if that change is helping so that we can back out if it's not helping. Yeah. I better measure the metric we're trying to improve and monitor the other things, make sure those are not getting worse and have the subjective stuff. Like, Hey, how does it feel? Like, is that comfortable? Is that repeatable? All those things better be telling me like, this is a full go and I shouldn't be in the middle of a season, like all these variables. If that's the case, then we keep tiptoeing into the change and then we go with it. But there are so many times where like, what I think I know is not actually what gets the results in the athlete. Mm -hmm. So you could think that like, okay, here's an example, the drift. And I'll get, to, I'll get to this example with, as far as like different hip structure, right? Most hard, most high level throwers have an athletic drift. They have a, a dynamic weight shift during their leg lift. They don't come to a bounce point. Okay. That being said, there have been cases where I've tried to teach the move to a guy already throwing mid nineties and they actually get worse. Like they do the move properly and now they're throwing 92, 93, but because we're measuring everything after a bullpen in the off season. So we're not going to do that in season in the off season. I'm like, you're already at a good spot. 
I'm not going to screw you up. I think I know, like, I thought I knew this, but it turns out I didn't know. Like, it turns out this actually screwed something else up in the kinetic chain. I could have, I could force the change through and just make him throw 92, 93 and like feel uncomfortable. Or I can say like, despite what I think I know, despite my philosophy, we're going to actually go with what's eliciting the results for you. And a lot of pro coaches don't do that. They say, I think that the heel has to stay engaged with the rubber, the entire linear move. I think that has to happen. And even if you throw 99 and your heel comes up early, we're going to change that. Even if it makes you throw 92, we're still going to keep that change because that's what I know. And I'm always right. Whereas I would say, wait a second, your heel was coming up. You're throwing 99. Now you're keeping your heel down and presetting a hinge. You're throwing 92. Why don't we go back to what you were doing, right? Despite what you think, you know, if they've already proved that a, a different way is better for them, we have to be willing and open to, to do that. And so like every big leaguer I work with is a guy who used to be a stud and like got screwed up somewhere along the way. And that's why they reached out to us. And we, we, it's always like, almost always it's an injury or it's a coach that thought they knew something forced that change through, even though the player knew intuitively that this was not a, not a positive change. They always intuitively can feel like something's off. Velo drops, something feels off. Command gets worse. The change gets forced through and they're just like, they just, they just go down this, go down this path and then they can't figure out what went wrong. And then they're out of baseball. Um, so that being said, one of the areas where that happens is not understanding an athlete's hip structure and trying to cue the lower half, the exact same for everybody. And so basically the idea is we have different, uh, obviously different body types, different anthropometry, limb lengths, et cetera. One of the, one of the differences is actually in our pelvic structure and our hip structure. And so without getting too detailed, basically you need to know that some athletes have really good hip internal rotation and really bad hip external. Some athletes are the opposite. They've got really good hip external rotation, right? They can sit cross-legged. Um, they can do like a frog stretch really easily, but they have really poor hip internal rotation. They can't do that knee to knee position very well. Uh, so I can share my screen here and just kind of show you guys some examples. I swear I didn't know you were going to ask this question. <laughs> this was a question I was going to ask to you guys and then bring up. Um, okay. We're going to show, this is a really obvious example comparing these. Okay. So different guys have different amounts of, of hip external, and different, different amounts of hip internal. You're going to see kind of three groups about 60% of guys, give or take are going to have decent hip internal rotation, decent hip external rotation. They're going to be somewhere in between, right? That might be someone like a Garrett Cole. It's really easy to see though on the extremes. So faulty. Just we'll just watch him throw. He's a guy with really good hip external. I never assessed him. I don't need to assess him to know that because I've worked with enough players and I know this this is what happens. So you look at the you look at the position that he gets into right here. He's cleared, he's cleared the front leg. He's clear, he's he's externally rotating the front leg and he's holding the back leg back. So he's in this externally rotated position. That's mm -hmm. the position where he can hold this stable pelvic posture and the stable trunk posture and move down the mound in this externally rotated position. Edwin Diaz. He's the opposite. So right there is a good example. He's, he's in that knee to knee position. Both hips are in this internally rotated position, knee to knee. And so that's a position where if you were, again, if you were to measure his hip internal rotation, you can already see from right here, he's got 40 plus degrees of hip IR just from the position of his, of his lead leg. But these are guys who are kind of on the other extreme and their hips are very much biased towards IR. And what that means is basically if you look at, if you look at the, the shin angles, 
again, they're in this more knee-to-knee position. They actually hold this, this uh, lead leg in more IR. So they're going to be guys who tend to show the, the bottom of the cleats towards the catcher for a lot longer, and they're going to have more counter-rotation of their pelvis. I mean, Edwin Diaz just absurd like positions that he gets into. Kind of demonstrating that. And then Fulte is kind of the opposite, where you'll see he clears this early. And again, doesn't really have any counter rotation with his leg lift. What you'll see with guys who are ER dominant, if they if they lift with a ton of coil, if he brought the knee way back here, like Josh Hader, he actually wouldn't be able to clear the leg in time. So he wouldn't be able to immediately get it open and clear like that. So what we've seen with working with certain guys like this, if we can just, and Corbin Burns is another example, Justin Verlander is another example. If they get too much counter rotation during their leg lift, they actually can't clear the lead leg like this early and they end up swinging the leg out and around. And then they end up basically not being able to get a good lead leg block. So, and Ryan, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. We tend, we tend to notice, we tend to notice with ER guys, they clear the lead leg early and they come into landing much more straight on into landing. So they land with their foot straight onto the target, the hard throwers versus landing closed or landing cross body. They land straight onto the target and they block straight through that lead leg. Whereas guys with good IR, a lot of times what you'll see is they'll land. And again, Diaz is just one ops, one example of that. There's a lot of different examples. They can, the IR guys can make it work if they land close with the front foot or cross body because they have the hip internal rotation to actually get around that. Yeah. Guys without it can't get around it. They have, they better clear it early, land straight on and block right through it. And so it's just understanding like there's these, there's these different categories and buckets you can place pitchers in based on their mobility. And if you've done an appropriate movement screen, you can start to see like, Oh, like what? Okay. So here's what happens if, you don't have any IR and you land cross body, this foot will roll out on you. The knee will bow out and you're going to have a really crappy lead leg block because you don't have the hip IR to actually get around the lead leg block. And so it's, it's not as much like you, you only understand that if you understand their mobility, mobility screen, you're like, there is no way you're going to open up 20 more degrees of IR if that's a bony block for that guy. So let's just get him instead of cross body, let's get him striding on target. Instead of yep. landing close, let's get him landing on target and it cleans it up right away. So understanding the connections between their mobility and their, their mechanics. And this was a huge, a huge light bulb moment a couple of years ago for us was just recognizing like, oh crap, this is like, this is what's happening. And maybe 10% of guys are in this one camp, 10% are in the other, 80% are somewhere in the middle. And it's not this clean cut thing, but that's still something that you can, you can test, you can try, you can play with how, how open or closed they stride. You can play with how uh, closed the front foot is. And typically you're going to find a pretty quickly what their preference is. Yeah. Uh, we had a player, a uh, phenomenal pitcher that ended up going out of baseball um, because of chronic shoulder issues. He was, he was an external guy that became internal and not only internal, um, in terms of his delivery, they pushed him. He was a right-hander. They pushed him more towards third. He was on opposite ends of the mound of the, of the rubber. And so what was happening is that he developed a a FAI, like an impingement issue that became a labral tear of his hip. Um, 
and which is super super easy to predict right like if, if you realize that he was just getting he was running out of room and that joint didn't have the ir and you're just going to jam him into the into that position like you know you or i could have told them from a mile away like you're gonna have you're like you're gonna have a label tear eventually like if you're just grinding down on that joint and right? this like this is to jump more into what we were saying earlier too is this was a player who has already been in the big leagues before these changes were put in. And I, I, I'm pretty sure I know who you're talking about, Ryan. Um, but, you know, he, he's a Ferrari. So when you – a Ferrari has very tight tolerances. If you start adding after – I'd have never once seen a Ferrari with aftermarket parts. Just me. I've seen plenty of Honda Civics with aftermarket parts. A lot looser tolerances. They're not as, pre- you know, precision engines, things like that. But when you start taking the way that a guy guys moved, and he might, this athlete at the time was what, 26, 27, Ryan? Yeah. Right in that age range. And they said, you've been doing this for over 20 years. You've really never had any major issues, but because of the way you're moving, we're predicting you're going to have an issue. Right. So then with all good intentions, the coach makes the change. And then the athlete being a highly coachable individual makes the change. He's athletic. He's able to change that movement really quickly. Then we flare up a hip and the kinematic sequence changes. Oh, now all of a sudden you need shoulder surgery. Oh, by the way, you're never going to pitch again. So just little things that, you know, understanding that making those tweaks when you're dealing with the Ferrari and you, you know, like you said, this is a big leaguer. How does it feel? What else is this impacting? It's, it all has to come into account. And that's why for me is something that so many people overlook is, you know, the length of a femur versus the tibia, the, the pelvis anatomy is going to dictate how a guy is going to be, be moving in that natural sense. And then when they've been doing it for longer and having success, you start running the risk of, of turning the Ferrari into the Volkswagen bug. For sure. And that's just a, that story is a shame because it's an example of like a coach thinking he knows something, even though it directly conflicts with, the results the on-field results and what the player's body is telling you and what the player is feeling. And then right? the like worst the, part about it is now that coach goes, I told you he was going to get hurt. Well, right. no, that happened because of the, the intervention. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's how it goes. It's the coaches who think they know everything that regardless of the outcome that happens, they're right. Right. Like immediately like changing everything about every player when they get drafted and then the, the nine out of 10 that it doesn't work for, it's like, oh, they just didn't have it. They're uncoachable. Like, right. They're uncoachable. Or, and the, or you brought up coachability. I, I feel like fairly passionate about that because I was a guy who like actually educated myself and still uh, all these changes were kind of forced through on me, even after I'd had, had success in my first, you know, first season. And I was like, okay, we're going to just change these seven things because like you don't look conventional, but the guy who actually educates himself and has a reason for why he, Oh, I've tried that before. That didn't work. Here's why. Like that guy then gets flagged as uncoachable when mm-hmm. really they're, they're the guy who like, it should be a collaborative process. And that's how, that's how we address and approach coaching is collaborating with the athlete. Like, I don't just go into a, a programming for an athlete. Like this is, this is what we're going to do. You have a hypothesis. Like you think this is going to work. You think you understand what's going on, but you better actually test and you better actually talk to the athlete and understand like what they're feeling and understand that side of it too. Because the second the athlete tells me like, Hey, like that felt that change. Like I know you said it was going to help, but like it felt terrible. My hips pinched and my Velo was down three. Like I'm backing off that change. I'm not forcing that change through. Even if I think that he should be a vertical shin guy, because like 
That's what my philosophy tells me. Yeah. And I, think- I know Ryan's got a lot to say on this too. And, you know, one of the things me and Ryan have always talked about is we wanted to educate our athletes with as much as they wanted to know. If an athlete just said, Hey, tell me what I need to do. Okay. We'll do that. But if they want to know what, why, and how are we going to do this? I'm all for educating the athlete as much as possible. I just spoke with an organization maybe on, it was on Friday, something like that. And one of their big concerns was, well, what, what are we going to do when the players ask questions? Well, we don't want to, well, you should educate yourself as well. So you can explain this information to them. That's very important to do is if you're going to be in a position of authority, you better have those answers. And I got a lot of pushback for it because there was times that I I would tell an athlete, I don't know, but let's find this out together. Right. Well, you can't tell them you don't know. Well, that's how you build trust. This is a relationship, right? Like if we don't have an answer, are you supposed to make up that like, don't just make something up. Like, say you don't and that exactly like, that just yeah. drives me crazy because the people that i the coaches that i know like some like hall of fame caliber names in the, in the college coaching world and some really well-respected pro coaches like the best coaches that i know are the ones who are most open to learning and the m- most humble and willing to say they don't know yeah but exactly. like, I'm thinking yeah. of like scott brown brent strom nate yesty like i'm thinking like yeah. these are the most humble guys yeah. who re- recognize they don't have it figured out and they're they're actually the ones who are, are the experts and, and the guys that you know, think they have it figured out, aren't. And I think I one think, of the key things you said on there was, I don't remember if you said it was, it was a pivot point for you when you started looking into the pelvis or as an eye-opening experience for your, for your group. But, and that's the thing is that's, that's the learning aspect of going, oh, here's something we didn't know about. And here's yeah. how we can fold this into our system. For sure. And credit, credit to Eugene Bleeker for, you know, I had a conversation with him and it kind of spawned this, this whole, you know, discovery. So I'm going to give him a shout out too, because Again, he, he definitely was part of that kind of realization. And we, we took that and ran with it and kind of built out like, okay, here's exactly how we need to adjust our, our training approach based upon this, this light bulb moment. I think, I think one of the things that we need to think about in coaching is that we shouldn't think of ourselves as directors, but more as consultants. Like we, we need to allow the athlete to pick and choose things that we're saying that they resonate with. Yep. Um, because, and you said it best, a humble coach is one that knows how to pivot. The stubborn, proud coach is the one that sticks with a plan that isn't working. And they don't have the concept of, I am going to consult for you and I may not get it right, but we're going to figure it out. And they need to have some time constraints in terms of what that should be. You know, is it two outings? It, it certainly shouldn't be longer than a month with a pro athlete. You know, that's, that's far too long. Um, and, and they need to have discussions around that. They need to have, you know, this is where we're going to evaluate you. And if we don't see a, an improvement, we're going to make a pivot. But they need to have that laid out to the athlete so that they give themselves the opportunity to make changes. And they let the athlete know that they don't have the exact direction right now, but they have an idea. Because um, you fall into a big problem when you, you direct and, and then the athlete resents you because you're, un, you're unwilling to make the change that they want to see. And I think that that's an important piece of communication. I mean, yep. I, I obviously oversaw strength and conditioning for the, for the angels. And there were athletes that said, Hey, I just want to go and jog, you know? And, and for me, I was trying to educate them, you know, the, the hip lock position the, the knee to knee separation is very similar in pitching from sprinting. When you jog, you don't have those positions. And this athlete just said, well, it makes me feel better. Well, then, of course, you need to do it. Right. 
you know, I'm not going to fight you when you have a, a mental model that this is something that you need to do. You know, even though I've done everything I can to educate you why another option is better for you athletically as a pitcher. Um, and, and we just need to get to that point. You know, some, sometimes the athlete has to hold our hand. Yeah, and there, that just brings up the, the fact that like something might be quote unquote ideal in theory. Like the ideal thing might to be taking might be to take like these 50 recovery supplements and like, you know, use a red light in the sauna and like get 10 and a half hours of sleep and like monitor everything with your whoop strap. And like, you might have this perfect ideal, like textbook thing of what they need to do. But in reality, it's like, no, like I like having this routine, like this works for me. This helps me feel prepared and ready. And a lot of these little details aren't worth fighting the athlete on if they feel strongly about it. Yeah. Right. Like and that, having that goes back into education. Exactly. And maybe, maybe you educate them and they can come to terms with like, Oh, I'm going to tweak a couple of things here or there. Cause now I see the reasoning behind why jogging might not be as beneficial as X, Y, Z, but they need to be on board with that change. If a change is just like forced through, they're not going to be committed to that change and they're not, they're either not going to follow it or they're going to follow it half-heartedly. Yeah. I mean, one of the other things that we need to understand is coaching, especially with the elite level athletes, you sometimes have to wait for them to fail. They sometimes have to come to you, you know, like Ben, you're getting guys that are really, they, they're struggling. So they're very open to change, but when they're on the inside walls of a, of a pro setting, you know, you, you, you kind of have to be patient if they're, if they're not catching what you're putting out right away and they have to come to you to say, Hey, I need help. Um, if you're going in there, guns a blazing, trying to change your first round pick in the first week that you get him in an organization, you haven't given him a chance to show you what he can do. You know, you got to give the player a fair chance before you want to go in and, and tinker, because just like what you're saying, you're, you're getting uh, these athletes that have been kind of manhandled and they, they need to have an opportunity to say, Hey, like I, I'm not even getting a chance to show you what I can do, yep. you know, and, and the coach, like great coaching is, is trust building. And, and how like, we know, our, like at work, we start a new job. Imagine that your boss is starting to already pick you apart and you haven't even produced a, a work sample yet. Like that, that's just not, that's not effective. That's not effective leadership and coaching. So, you know, what you guys are saying is just, it's awesome. We're all saying the same thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it's important. You know, you said you, the coach needs to view themselves as a consultant. And I would even go one step further and say they need to view themselves as a tour guide. It's the coach's job to get the players on the bus and point out, hey, here's the Eiffel Tower. Here's this. And then if they're wanting more information and someone on the bus raises their hand, that's where you can start going more in depth on what that is. Mm-hmm. And you're just you're 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 directing them where it is they want to go. And Ben pointed out earlier, you know, during the introduction that if a player's goal is A, B, and C, you don't say, well, now your goal's E, F, and G. No, we're still going to help you accomplish your goal because at the end of the day, this is the player's career. It's our job to help them, you know, be educated and to make those decisions to where they can do that on their own. Obviously, you can't take Ben with you on the mound. You can't take me with you on the mound. You can't take Ryan with you to the weight room and you can't take Bart with you out to the surf. But if we were educating those players enough on what it is they need to do when they step between the lines, they're going to be able to make those decisions on their own when it's actually, you know, the lights are on and it matters. And that's the goal is we're, we're tour guides, we're consultants. We're, we're long-term development specialists that are helping these guys be the best 
coach that they can be for their for themselves as well and to impact the game when they're done playing and just keep going on and on and on. Um, I don't know if that made any sense. I'm good for one ramble every day. No, so. that's 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 so true. Um, you know, we'll have random moments here and there where like I don't even talk to an athlete for like two weeks or whatever, and I, I hear back from him. He's like, I jumped up th- two miles an hour, three miles an hour, like something clicked. I'm like. Well, I didn't tell you, like, I didn't change anything. So what clicked? And he's like, I, I watched like these three videos of yours and I was just tinkering. Like I was tinkering with it and checking and measuring. And like, I know what you heard what you said here, here, and here. And I put it together and it finally made sense. And like something clicked. And so it's really cool when they, they actually are empowered by that information and then they can go and, and take that and like almost like become their own coach, really. Because like you said, I'm not going to be there. Their coach isn't going to be there every single day. So being able to, actually learn from the information and not just like see a sheet of paper that they're going to just follow some exercises, like actually begin to connect the dots. Obviously it's a double-edged sword where some guys are over analytical and you need to protect them from themselves a little bit. And so knowing which athlete you're dealing with and knowing like, you know, which guy you need to protect from himself a little Mm -hmm. bit. And then which guys, okay, he can handle this information. It's going to help him connect the dots a little better. Exactly. And then when in doubt, just yell throw strikes from the dugout. There you go. (laughs) All right, Ben, we, this has been awesome. Um, we may have to do part two. I know you've got a couple more questions. I also know it's. We could go on all day, so got to cut it somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if you guys want to do one more um, and then we, we'd love to have you back, I'm sure. And you sure. know, do some more stuff. So one more, Ben, what do you got? Do you guys want to ask me a question or do you want me to go into, we can go into uh, ground reaction force. We can go into grip strength. Yeah, let's go ground reaction force. Because we're on the topic of, you know, what you're looking at as far as the lower body. Yep. Okay. So my my question here, obviously, you know, you can you can take this in multiple directions. Um, I talked to Greg Rose a little bit about about this, and he's done some some research on this as well. But there's obviously a vertical ground reaction force component. Um, I'm specifically thinking about the lead leg, but we can talk about the the back yep. leg as well. There's a vertical ground reaction force component. There's obviously that that anterior to posterior component as well. Um, but there's also a torsional or torque component as well. Yeah. Um, could you touch on that piece? Because a lot of people don't understand that, and I wasn't uh, I wasn't familiar that that could even be measured until until recently. But one thing I'm, I'm thinking of immediately is like um, as two examples that kind of demonstrate how relevant that force is. Uh, one, if anyone's ever like thrown or warmed up like wearing their socks and not just like just like tossing a ball or doing plyos like in their socks, what you'll see is that like as your foot your lead foot plants it actually, and you plant the sock actually gets like torqued underneath your foot as this, as this torsion force happens, like the sock gets like pulled around your foot. And after like 10 throws, your sock is on sideways. Like that's one cool example, just showing this force in action. Um, the other piece to that, uh, okay. Okay. The other piece that, that I noticed, this was a few years ago, I sprained my lead ankle really badly, like terrible, terrible lead ankle sprain. What I realized is my foot had this tendency after that point to want to roll out on me because I, I had lost this, this eversion strength. So as I began to rotate into my front foot, it would just like cave out on me because I had lost this ability to evert, to hold that, hold that big toe down and resist that, that torsional force because I, I still had that, that ankle sprain. I still had weakness on the lateral side. So I started to realize like how important being able to not just de- kind of deal with that, that vertical force, not just deal with that, that posterior force, but also the torsional piece of it. 
is there anything you can speak to on that end and kind of kind of shed some yeah. light on that? That's just something I'm very curious about. Oh yeah. Um, sorry, I don't have my video on, guys, because I got weird internet right now. Um, what you're talking about is called the free moment, and not many people measure it. Okay, so they're obviously they're looking at forces that are um, superior, inferior, so z-axis, anterior, posterior, like what you're saying is front and back, and then medial lateral, which are really important. And they're all, they're all affected by uh, different ankle movements. So you got like your vertical is obviously you're looking at two things. You're looking at your plantar flexion. So plantar flexion is that, you know, basically that one. Um, and uh, your medial lateral are really inversion, eversion. But your free moment, your free moment is all related to internal and external rotation of the foot. Okay. And there's not many studies that have looked at it. And, and the ankle in the picture is something that's so important to look at. And we're so focused because of our weight room concepts of improving dorsiflexion. You know, but the, the important pieces are the off-axis, like what you're talking about, the inversion and in, in, uh, eversion, also the internal and external rotation of the foot. And the internal and external rotation of the foot, it happens from the rotation of the tibia. So what, what you're talking about, we need to create friction. Friction is what allows us to create this rotational um, force component. And so when you look at the dry foot, the dry foot should be able to um, plantar flex, externally rotate. That means your, your uh, tibias are rotating internally. Your foot's rotating out. That gives a kind of the closed chain mechanism. Um, and then it has to actually invert and you're, you're kind of saying this about trying to keep heel contact. You know, you need to be able to, your, your shin has to fall to the ground while your foot is gripping. So naturally that closed chain motion is going to be um, inversion. And the combination of those three movements, okay, external rotation of the foot, plantar flexion, inversion happening, all three planes, it creates torsion that you need. And that's the effectiveness of, of applying force, the right force vectors. Now, when you look at, you know, talking about this rotational type of uh, torque that's, that's made from the ground on the lead foot, the lead foot, like just what you're saying, you know, you see sometimes where when a pitcher is rotating, the pelvis is coming around, they're getting into layback, they're accelerating the arm, the knee starts pinching in. You see that sometimes where they're stabilizing, the knee starts going in, it looks like valgus, but that's really eversion of the foot. So what you need to have there is kind of different. You need eversion you need to have uh, internal rotation of the foot. So that means that the tibia is externally rotating about that foot and plantar flexion. And that's going to give you all those triplanar forces that create that free moment of rotation. So, you know, we can't think of what the ankle does in isolation of all these three movements. It's got to do all these things together and uh, ankle training. I, we, we had ankle based programs and quite honestly, we focus so much more on inversion, eversion, than plantar flexion and extension, or plantar flexion, dorsiflexion. Um, and, you know, like what you're saying, you know, athletes have to throw in cleats to then get that rotational component, because you'll see too, you know, I had laboratory studies, when you're looking at laboratory studies, you know, sometimes they're in like turf shoes, and the toe picks up, right. you know, and they, they heel spin, and you can't create that rotational torque, which I think is very important. And you're touching on an area in baseball biomechanics that I can honestly say very few people know. 
you know. For sure. And that, that's that's one reason, uh, I believe at least, that, that a lot of athletes do throw harder in cleats. Um, typically, that some guys will throw the same same velo in, in turfs, indoors, that they do in cleats. But the athletes where the, when they're indoors, you can you can see that that foot spins out on them. Those yep. guys always get plus two to three when they get outside, and it's it's not an adrenaline or game thing. It's it's literally just yeah. big dirt and cleats. Yep, it's it's that combination of those three axis types of yep. movement, you know, that you're seeing. So like this is great. So you see how the shin's starting turning down. Yeah, that so foot's you're, you're, in, that foot's inverting on the drive yeah. side. This this foot's inverting because the shin's now over here, and this still has to yes. stay down. Yes. Yep. Yep. And, and then, and then, and then what's happening too, is that shin's going down, it's starting to internally rotate. So there's that, that external rotation of the foot because the, the shin's internally rotating. Yeah, so the it's shin now is going this way. Yeah. The foot is the now foot's going, yeah. The foot's basically yep. creating, yeah, that torsion. Right. And, and then, then there's, then there's it, a reversal of that right here that now the foot yeah. goes into eversion at the last second. It's holding inversion. And then the last second. Yeah. And then the, everything spirals up. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's just interesting because the both feet have a little bit different force applications. You know, that lead foot, when it lands, it's trying to either, you're trying to get to your big toe. And yeah, the, the force of this, that rotation is trying to pull this foot, rip that foot off the ground. And the yeah, and you're trying to keep the toe down. Hold that yeah. toe down as you ro rotate into it aggressively. Yeah. And yeah. That's, what, and that, that's what I would feel when I, when I spray my ankle like it was six to eight weeks before I felt like I could trust that again Yeah, because I, yeah. I had lost eversion strength. I'd lost that ability to hold the, the toe yes. as I rotated into the block. Yes. It, and it's, it's just so interesting. I mean, baseball, we're just so focused. We're just so focused on mechanics that happen after foot contact. And we, we need, like we're talking about this, this entire podcast about things that are happening before foot contact. And these are like low hanging fruits to improve no weighted balls, no special implements, just training mobility, you know, focus on these structures, matching the, the approach to the anatomical components of the athlete, you know, but, but these are, you know, and you hit this, like uh, something that's really interested me on looking at this rotational uh, moment of force. Cause I did not measure it in my studies, but I have looked at the ankle in pretty big detail. Um, that I think there, you know, when people start understanding that as a, as a force component, you know, there could be a lot of magic happening because there's a, there's a whole bunch of different ankle mechanisms that go into that, but we can see it. This video is great. We can see all these things happening. One, one thing I want to touch on there real quick is, you know, everything that's being described, just like any aspect of the pitching is at some point it's going to be moving in frontal, sagittal, and transverse but too much when it comes to training rehabilitation or even just coaching at any point is you get too dialed in on just looking at one plane of movement when in reality it's, it's gotta be a mix of all three of those at some point. Cause when we're just going through what that back foot's doing, even the front foot is it's going from one plane to the other in a rapid, rapid movement when it comes down to it. And if we're only focusing on, you know, inversion and eversion of the foot, we're missing out on those, those torsions that you're talking about. And there, there's different ways we need to train everything. And, you know, too often we're only going to train, you know, uh, uh, Mike Boyle is the guy's name, right. Who uh, started going single leg and then progressive overloading and changing from only doing uh, regular two stand, two legs on the ground deadlift to now you're doing a single leg deadlift. 
And, you know, he has, I think he has a good way of looking at things of you're, you're trying to build that stability in those different ranges and different, um, you know, implements, however it is you can get it done to make sure that when you're doing an act of throwing, that's not so cut and dry, like a sprint, a 90 foot sprint is a little more cut and dry than just what's happening with the back foot during the pitching motion into foot, into foot strike. Uh, so I think that's important to note too, that it's, it's happening on multiple planes. For sure. And just to, I, I know we, we got to go at some point here, but just to tie this back into, um, like you said, there, there's a lot going on multiple planes. Um, you know, we've, we've talked about eversion, inversion. We've talked about dorsiflexion, plantar flexion. Like this is, this is all things that we, we can check head to toe. Like this is all things that any coach can learn how to assess these things, right? We can assess tibial rotation. We can assess tibial IR, ER. We can assess ankle inversion, eversion, plantar flexion, dorsiflexion. And we can do that joint by joint through the entire body. So we can see what, what the athlete's dealing with and see at a glance, like these are probably going to be some, some limiting factors that show up in the pitching delivery. So we can look at it from that perspective. We just go back to uh, just sample uh, sample assessment. So like this is actually a, this is a, fir- a former first rounder. Uh, he's been in the big leagues, but like we can we can check actually joint by joint what's going on, grade that, and look at it from from that perspective. But then we can also look at it from the perspective: how does he move on the mound? There's a ton of stuff that we look at here and, and kind of grade them on. Um, and you can go in either direction. So it, maybe you find that, you know, this is a guy where his, his, uh, you know, his hips open up early or he has a really short stride. Well, you might be able to predict just from that what some of his mobility limitations or his strength limitations might be. But on the flip side, maybe we, we see from his assessment, like, okay, he's really weak on one leg. Okay, he's limited in, in dorsiflexion. He's limited in eversion. Like we might be able to also predict the other direction, what mechanical issues there are going to be. So we just have a lot more information at this point at our fingertips. And then you're kind of like this puppet master, again, looking at it from that bird's eye view. How do these things all interrelate? What's a mobility issue? What's a strength issue? What's a stability issue? Like what's a motor pattern issue? What's a nutrition recovery issue? And then you start to synthesize it all. And like the athlete only needs to see the tip of the iceberg. He needs to know like, what do I do tomorrow to get better? But you as the coach, you have all this information at your fingertips. I, I, I like the fact that, you know, I think too, the assessment should have the pitcher both, you know, if you have them inside, you should try to have the, them in cleats too. You should try to have the, the video in cleats because you will see different mechanisms. Like the, the lead leg block will be different. You know, I, I believe um, nobody's really done the comparative analysis of laboratory or bullpen assessment versus game, but you know, Jordan and I, like I was saying, Jordan, kudos to him, 20,000 data points of in-game data, um, hand digitized data by one person, which I believe in. There are differences that you're going to see um, that you might not see, you know, having the, the athlete in shoes. So I'm, I'm glad we're talking about this because if the athlete can get you some game footage, um You'll, you'll be able to see, you know, some some of these subtle differences and, and maybe understand that, you know, maybe what I'm not seeing uh, in my assessment in inside, you know, the uh, the walls of the, the facility, you know, you might be able to start to match it up with what you're seeing in the game and have even deeper concepts of, of performance. For sure. And to, to take that a step further, um, one one extreme of that. So the athlete obviously needs to be able to trust that lead leg block, right? That's, that's what you're getting at. Like if they can't trust their, their back leg, uh, 
drive or, or their back leg force application back foot into the ground. If they can't trust that, their stride's going to shorten. They're going to stay very vertical. They're not really going to get into their lower half. And if they can't trust their lead leg block, well, they're going to soften their lead leg. They're not going to stride as far. They're not going to get as horizontal of a, of a force application on that lead leg either. If you take that to an extreme and you have someone like throw in socks where they're really slipping yeah. all over the place or have them throw like on a mound, but like in mud, you'll see that exact really exaggerated effect where they just like don't really use their lower half because they don't trust like they don't trust the back leg to be able to create a horizontal force and they don't trust the front leg to be able to create that force. So they just kind of throw like very upright, like no lower yeah. half. So yeah. like, I like to use like this, this example, like athletes that use anterior posterior, like Trevor Bauer would be a good example. Like he really gets into his backside. So he really creates that horizontal angle on the back leg. And then his, his lead leg is then mirroring that. Then his lead leg really creates a horizontal angle to mirror that force. Somebody who's like very upright, like they basically don't get into their back leg at all. The lead leg mirrors that as well. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be able to see game footage, but you also want to see what happens in like indoors. You want to see like, Hey, maybe that's where the disconnect happens because you have both data points. You can see that. And then you can recommend they throw in cleats. So yeah. it's all like, the point is that it's all <coughs> and us as coaches, we need to be able to see as much information as possible and distill that down to the, the most simple actionable advice for the athlete. Awesome. Listen, I, uh, this was great. Uh, definitely would think we could do this again. Um, anyone who's out there listening, if this triggered some questions, please, you know, ask us on YouTube, go out to our blog, um, ask us there, or even just support at armcare.com email and ask us and, and, and we'll get your answers. Um, I'm going to link to a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff in the show notes here. Um, this is definitely one you're going to want to watch the YouTube video. Um, but, uh, Ben Brewster, thank you for joining us. And, uh, until next time, Take care, everyone.